Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. We are continuing in our series in Romans through 2024, and I'm kind of ready to be done with chapters one and two. Because one, two, and three really are building up a case for our need for grace, building up some conviction in our lives. If you can study one, two, and three of Romans and not have a greater awareness of your own sin than you're reading it wrong, the gospel we've said is a diagnosis and it's a cure, but before it can be a cure, it needs to be a diagnosis. And so Paul in Romans one through three is diagnosing us. He's putting us all in the same circle. He's talking about the unrighteous and the self-righteous, but making it clear no matter what your story is, God's grace is what you need in Jesus. It is your only hope. And we're getting there. We're getting to grace. But I don't want each week as we go through one through three, I don't wanna leave you feeling shame and guilt because grace is coming, right? Like Jesus, loved us while we were still sinners, Romans 5 says, and he came and he died for us to make us new. So we're gonna celebrate that, but we're still in chapter two. We still have some diagnosis left to do. Uh, A couple months ago, I was on my way home from work and decided to stop at a restaurant, pick up some soup. It was cold winter night, then pick up some soup for my wife and I. And as I was driving down Subbyville Road, I was gonna stop at Panera Bread and I saw another business I hadn't noticed before, and it seemed that this business only sold soup. I'm like, well, I'll try that. Pulled in the parking lot, and I walked into this place of business. (laughs) That's uh, Buff City soap. I thought it said soup. I mean, my eyes aren't great, but I would also say that when you are hungry for soup, and you're thinking soup, and you're wanting soup, that soap looks like soup. Could have happened to anybody. And so I walked in, and my first thought was not, I'm in a soap place. My first thought was, why does this soup place sell so much soap? <laughs> like, it took me a minute. I didn't realize, and in context, Buff City makes more sense with soap than with soup. Like, Buff City soup sounds like a restaurant in violation of a lot of different health codes and public decency laws, right? Like, Buff City soup. Not so great, but, but I, thought it was, I, I thought it was soup. So I, I walk in there and I should have laughed at myself and just kind of walked out. But I felt like the only other person in there, the lady who worked there, could see right through me. I, in my mind, she's thinking, I bet that moron walked in here looking for soup. <laughs> and so I start shopping around. Like, hey, do you know where the vanilla lavender scent is? What goes good with broccoli and cheese? Right, like, I've, And I started thinking, okay, maybe I could turn this embarrassing moment into a romantic gesture. Maybe I could get some soap and some soup and go home with a combination of soap and soup for my wife. But then I started thinking, no, she'll see through that. She'll be like, did you stop at the soap place to get soup and end up like, I I could see the whole thing that she would recognize. The whole story kind of represents my inclination to put out the best version of myself. My inclination to worry about how people perceive me, wanting to manipulate a situation so that I look as good as possible, wanting to take mistakes and failures and and 
and present them in such a way that are disguised and makes people impressed with me. And I would say that all of us have this innately with us, inside of us, that we, we care about what people see. We put a lot of attention on the outside. We worry about keeping up appearances. We wanna minimize our failures and mistakes and disguise them, manipulate the situation to make ourselves look as good as possible. All of this is self-righteousness. And it can be especially prevalent within the church. There's something about church, religion, there's something about moralism that creates that and makes it even stronger within us. And so in Romans 2, Paul is writing to address this spirit of self-righteousness because it's not just unrighteous sinners who need the grace of Jesus, it's the self-righteous sinners that need the grace of Jesus. And if you haven't noticed, he spends more time talking to the self-righteous than the unrighteous. And here's why, it's because when you're self-righteous, it's harder to see your sin. Self-righteousness blinds you to your own self-righteousness. Self-righteousness tries to convince you, I'm good. And the way people perceive me is really how I am with God. It equates our eternal standing with our outward appearance. And so Paul addresses all of that in, in chapter two, starting in verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you're kind of growing up with this religious heritage, if, if you're a church person who's read the Bible, who studied the scriptures, if you rely on the law and boast in God, Look how I've kept the rules. Look at the family I came from. Check out my church attendance record. If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little, little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, if you're putting your confidence in your religion and in your knowledge, your theological knowledge, if you're, if you're finding that you feel superior to others because of your spiritual past, what's been passed down to you, then I've got some things I wanna to say to you. And he's gonna warn us here about self-righteousness and hypocrisy. So for context, let's remember that he's writing this to Christians in the Church of Rome that are split up into two groups. You've got the Jews who grew up with a very moralistic approach they knew the Old Testament, they'd studied the scriptures, they'd kept the traditions, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, they had that sign in their front yard, the whole thing. The Gentiles, not so much. The Gentiles grew up in Rome and they had this very secular, very hedonistic um, culture and view of life and you bring these two groups together to make up the church and there was this tendency to have this varsity and JV approach where the Jews feel like, well, because I mean, no offense, Gentiles, but because of our background, because of what we know, because of what's been passed down to us, because of our heritage, you know, we've got the VIP seats over here, and they felt superior because of their knowledge, because of the way they had been brought up. And so Paul's addressing the self-righteousness by way of review. In chapter one, he talks about the unrighteous and he uses the pronoun they. They are greedy, they are sexually immoral, they are lovers of pleasure, they, 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 they. And then in chapter two, he switches it and he says you. About the time the Jews start applauding, like yeah, tell them, let them have it, they need to hear it. Paul switches pronouns from they to you so you know that you are they. We are all in the same sin circle and his warning is against self-righteousness. So how do you know if you're on this self-righteous scale? Here's a little test. I want you to think of 
a person that you're in a closer relationship of some kind with. Maybe it's a sibling or a friend or a roommate. I mean, you know this person pretty well. If you're married, just make it your spouse, okay? Now, you have that person in mind, okay? If you're sitting next to them, don't make eye contact, just have them in your mind. <laughs> now, I want you to think of three things that that person needs to do different. Three areas that that person needs to grow in, three, three things about them that need to be addressed, things that need to change. So you got the person? If you got the person, you should think of the three things. Just three. <laughs> now, I, I want you to think of yourself in that relationship. If you're married with your spouse, maybe it's a friend, a coworker, what are three things that you could do different? What are three areas that you need to grow in? In what three ways do you need to change? See, a self-righteous person has no problem with the first part of that test. They're good at seeing what needs to change in other people, but not so good at recognizing it when it comes to their own life. Jesus said, why are you looking at the, the speck of dust in your neighbor's eye when you got a plank in your own eye? They're good at recognizing what somebody else needs to address, but not so good at recognizing that in their own lives. Another sign of self-righteousness is that you love to compare yourself to other people. When you're trying to prove your own righteousness, when you're trying to come up with the case for your own goodness, your own moralism, the way you do that, consciously or not, is you compare yourself to other people and you feel better about you because of what mess they're in. And for this reason, when someone has some kind of a, a moral uh, fall in some ways, like you, you say on the outside, oh, I hate to hear that. But inside, you're like, yeah, yeah, I, it's not my story. I didn't do that. I'd never do that. And you feel better about yourself by comparing yourself to other people. Another sign of a self-righteous person is that you get offended and you stay offended. You stay offended. Like somebody said something or they did something and then offense initially was natural, but you've hung on to it because you don't deserve it. In your mind, it's not fair that you would be treated that way. In, in your mind, your offense is warranted. So you just, you just stay offended, just stay offended. It's a sign of self-righteousness. You play a part of the victim, a self-righteous person when they do something or they say something that they know is wrong or sinful, the way they get around feelings of guilt or conviction is they blame somebody else for it. And so sometimes they'll rewrite history to get them to the place where it's okay for them to do what they did because that way they can still look in the mirror and, and feel good about themselves. A self-righteous per person craves approval and likes they wanna always be patted on the back. So Paul is addressing the spirit. He's warning these church people about self-righteousness. The message paraphrases Romans 2, 17 and following in a way that I think is helpful. He says, if you're brought up Jewish, don't assume that you can lean back in the arms of your religion, feeling smug, because you're an insider to God's revelation, a connoisseur of the best things of God informed on the latest doctrines acting like you're better than other people. I've got a special word of caution for you who are sure you have it all together. Because you know God's revealed word inside and out and you feel qualified to guide others through their blind alleys and dark nights and confused emotions to God. I've got a special word for those of you who think, nah, I've got this thing figured out. 
Got a special word for those of you who look around and think, well, maybe there's some things that I could address, but at least I'm not like this person over here. Special word of caution, number one, don't put your confidence in your religious tradition. Do not find confidence in the fact that you grew up, perhaps, going to church, parents who tried to instill faith in you, or grandparents who made sure you knew it was important. Like, that's a beautiful gift, unless that's what you've put your confidence in. Unless you think that is what determines your standing with God, then that gift is not so much a gift. Because it's making you think things are okay with you and God, when in reality, things are okay with your parents and God, or your grandparents and God. Like, that, that standing does not... Um, get passed down. You don't get to inherit that from them. It has to be your own. And sometimes, and sometimes what happens to those of us who grew up in church is we start to feel fine about ourselves because we've gone through the motions for so long and we've gotten so good at the outward appearance that we've fooled not only the people around us, but we fool ourselves. Um, a number of years ago, I read the autobiography of uh, the tennis player Andre Agassi. Uh, the book is called Open. And for years, Andre Agassi was one of the top tennis players in the world, turned pro at 16, won eight grand slams over his 20-year career. But what I found interesting in the book is that it's not what he wanted. And he talks about what he calls his deep ambivalence towards tennis. He was ambivalent. He was indifferent. He didn't care. And and what happens with ambivalence is it has a way of turning to resentment and bitterness. And he describes this scene in his life where his demanding father pushed him into the sport. He says, I never chose this life and I resented it. For a long time, I resented it. My dad decided I was gonna be number one in the world before I was even born. And he writes about a practice session he had with his dad when he was age seven. My arm feels like it's about to fall off. I ask my dad, how much longer, Pops? And no answer, I get an idea. Accidentally on purpose, I hit a ball high up over the fence. I catch it on the rim of the racket so it sounds like a misfire. My father sees the ball leave the court. He curses, he stomps out of the yard. I now have four and a half minutes to catch my breath. It wasn't his choice. He had to reach a place in his life where he chose it and he wanted it for himself. But because of the way it was passed down to him, for a long time he was ambivalent and then he was resentful because it needed to be his choice. Now you wouldn't have known that if you saw him practice, if you would have looked at him out on the court, if you would have seen him win a championship, but he was, he was good. Like the performance was something he was good at, pretending was something he was good at, but it wasn't who he was on the inside and that, eventually wore him out and that ambivalence turned to, to resentment. And, and this is where some of you are at spiritually. Like you are good at going through the motions. It's been passed down to you, you know what's expected of you and so you're listening to this message right now. But if you had it your way, you wouldn't really be here. Like you're here because you feel pressured to. You're here because it's what's expected of you. But it's not real. Like you, you, you sit here in church and you pray, but when's the last time you prayed on your own? I mean, really prayed. And, and when we read scripture, you read scripture, if you're in a, a group or you're a, a part of a table, at man challenge, like, yeah, okay, you read the Bible, you, you study it there, but, but do you study it on your own? Do you read the Bible for yourself? And, and so we get good at going through the motions. We come here and we worship, we know the words to the songs, but 
but then we don't worship in our own hearts. We don't worship on our own. It's just this performance. And it's time to choose it for yourself. It's time to own it for yourself. Don't put your confidence in your religious heritage. I would say to some of you parents, you're carrying a weight these days because your child, perhaps adult child, hasn't chosen it for themselves. And you want them to choose it for themselves and you keep forcing and you keep forcing and, and you're frankly a little concerned about what other people think because your kid's not with you and they're not sitting next to you and, and, and you're not sure what path they're gonna go on. I would just tell you this as a pastor, it's better for them to go on a path and choose it for themselves than to spend the next 30 years going through the motions pretending putting on a good performance, speaking all your expectations, but none of it's real. And so our prayer would be that you would choose it for yourself, that you wouldn't put your confidence in what was passed down to you. You could be grateful for it, but you make it your own. Uh, one of the things um, I often address is a conversation where someone comes and they'll say, hey, my parents had me baptized when I was a baby. That's fine, right? Like, that's good. Or they'll say, I, I was baptized when I was little. Like, I kind of remember it. I, I think I was doing it to make my parents happy or, or some friends were getting baptized, so I did it too, but that's fine, right? And I would just tell you, it needs to be your decision. It's your commitment. It's your faith. That does not take away from what your parents' intent was. Like, I love the fact that they wanted to, from the beginning of your life, make sure to commit you to God. They wanted to make sure to prioritize your relationship with God. That is beautiful. But you need to reinforce that. Like, that has to be your decision. You, somebody else can't make that decision for you. And so in five weeks, when we have Easter, we're gonna have a time of celebration in our Easter service where we celebrate some baptisms. And I wanna challenge some of you who have felt ambivalent towards spiritual things to start preparing your hearts these next five weeks during Lent that you're gonna make it your own, that your faith, though it seems to have died and you're just going through the motions, that it would be resurrected on Resurrection Sunday, that you would be baptized, that you would commit your life and your heart to God, that you wouldn't go through the motions anymore, that you would make that decision for yourself. Don't put your confidence in what's been passed down to you. Be grateful for it, but make it your own. I would also warn those of you who have become comfortable in your religion, those of you who think you've got it all together, secondly, I would say, don't put your confidence in external appearances. Don't think that because you look good on the outside that makes you right with God on the inside. You might fool a lot of other people, but don't let that fool yourself into thinking that you and God are good when there's some stuff in here that needs to be addressed. Earlier this week, I, I took a selfie and I, I put that picture into this app that promised to generate these um, AI-generated like, uh, pictures that would make me look better within seconds. So I took the selfie, and then it generated these AI pictures I wanna show you here. There's this one. <laughs> there's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's my favorite. Uh, like, we live in a world where we're pretty good at this, we have a lot of opportunities to try to appear better than we really are. We have a lot of uh, filters that we can apply to make ourselves seem more impressive than what's on the inside. I sent those to my wife, thought she might get a kick out of them and she thought they were funny and then I went home and I'm like, then why is picture number three your screensaver? Like why, <laughs> what happened? 
I'm just kidding, she did not do that. She did not make that her screensaver. But we do versions of this that maybe aren't quite as obvious, but are just as manipulative, where we are constantly trying to find our worth and identity, trying to find confidence, not in what's real, but in what we can convince other people of. And this is what religion puts a focus on. This is why when Jesus in Matthew 23 is talking to the Jewish leaders, he preaches and he gives them, it's called the seven woes. The sermon is the seven woes. And Jesus seven times says, woe to you, woe to you. And it's a strong rebuke, woe to you, if you are equating your standing with God with your external appearance, what other people see. 23 verse five, Jesus says of these Jewish leaders, they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Phylacteries were these little boxes that they would wear on their foreheads and arms because the Bible said to wear, says to wear your, uh, his word on our foreheads and arms. I think it's meant metaphorically, like take this with you everywhere, but they decided we're gonna do this literally and so they wear these little boxes with parchment scripture rolled up inside and then one day one of them comes to the temple and another Jewish leader's got a bigger box on his forehead so he can fit more scripture. And so this guy comes back to the next guy and now his box is bigger and then now this guy's box is bigger and, and now they're carrying around these boxes on their arms and foreheads as this billboard, like here's, here's how much more spiritual I am than you by how much scripture that I'm carrying around on my forehead and my arms. And Jesus says, look, don't, don't think that what people see on the outside is determining who you are on the inside. Don't let that convince you of your standing with God. Don't equate your outward appearance with your eternal standing, and, and woe to you, Jesus says. If you demean the worship of God by turning it into a religious fashion show where you try to outdo each other with your outward signs of spirituality, woe to you if you spend an hour or two every day looking your very best outwardly, but you just don't have time to pay attention to what's on the inside which is what God sees. When you focus on the outward appearance, it, it can fool the people around you, but it can also fool yourself. You start thinking that's who you are. How people perceive you is really who you are spiritually. And you miss the work that needs to be done inside. There was a uh, commercial that was on TV a number of years ago where a pharmaceutical company was... Um, uh, had this advertising campaign promoting its prescription for hepatitis C. And the ad, if you remember this, it featured a close-up of an individual uh, with a badly marred, scarred, um, open sores on their face. And then the caption read, if hep C attacked your face instead of your liver, liver you'd do something about it. In other words, if you could see the damage that was done and it's happening inside, instead of paying attention to what's on the outside, you do something about it. And, and so for us spiritually, like this is the call, especially in our culture that puts so much emphasis on what people see, is to understand what's happening on the inside, what needs attention inside. Number three, word of warning to those who think they've got it all together is don't put your confidence in your theological knowledge. For the Jews, they knew a lot more about God than the Gentiles, they just did. They, they knew the Old Testament, they understood the sacrificial system and how Jesus was the fulfillment of the, the law, that Jesus was the fulfillment of these prophecies. Like they knew some things. But do not confuse your knowing about with knowing. Don't think because you know more that you know. There's a difference 
between knowledge and intimacy in a relationship. Like you can know all the stats about LeBron James, you can know all about his career and his scoring and his championships, but that doesn't mean you know him. But what can happen is we can know so much about that we convince ourselves that it's the same as knowing. And Jesus says it's not the same. Don't put your confidence in your theological knowledge. Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Didn't we do these great things for you in your name? And Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Do not let knowledge be confused with intimacy. And he doesn't say there will be a few, he doesn't say there'll be some, he'll say there'll be many who will hear, I never knew you. So for all of you who've grown up going to church, for all of you who went to VBS and Awanas and church camps and Christian schools, that's good. But don't let that convince you that you're spiritually superior than the person who didn't. Don't, don't let that fool you into thinking that you're on the varsity team. It's not how it works. All of you who grew up doing sword drills and turned your lights off on Halloween, okay. But don't you think for a moment that that makes you spiritually superior than the person who just started coming to church last week? In fact, Jesus addresses this in Luke 7 when the, the woman who's a prostitute in town comes in when Jesus is having lunch at the home of Simon, the religious leader, and the woman falls at the feet of Jesus and she's broken and her tears wet his feet and she dries his feet with her hair and Jesus says to the religious leader who just doesn't get it, Jesus says, let me explain to you. The one who is forgiven much loves much. She gets it, you don't. And you may have kissed dating goodbye and you may have saved yourself for marriage and that's good, that's fine, but don't for a moment think that makes you religiously superior or more loved by God than the exotic dancer who's been coming to church for about a month. And you may have grown up coming to church twice a week and volunteering in the nursery and that's good. I hope through that you've grown closer in your relationship with God, but those things in and of themselves do not put you in better standing with God then the person who's come in here, repented of their sin, then baptized, even though they've got a really difficult past. And you may faithfully give 10% of your income every week to advance the work of God, and that's good. But that doesn't make you a VIP in God's eyes, and it doesn't make you a VIP around here any more than the person who comes in, and they're deeply in debt, and they have nothing to give, but they have a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You may be a CEO or you may be an ex-con, we're all in the same circle. Billy Graham used to say it this way, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no class system in the kingdom of heaven. And part of us getting to Romans three is to be real clear on this. You're not better because of what you haven't done or because of what you have done. You are not better, we are all in need of Jesus, and our only hope is his grace and his righteousness. Yeah. So we come to chapter three in these upcoming weeks, but we're not quite there yet. First, he's gonna warn us about hypocrisy. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, this is in quotes. It's coming from Isaiah because it's nothing new, right? This is not new. This idea that we would point a finger and preach and say, this is what you're doing wrong and you're doing wrong and you're doing wrong without recognizing the sin in our own lives. I wanna be clear, the call here is not demanding perfection, it is a call to authenticity. There's a difference. It's not demanding perfection, it's, it's a call to authenticity. It's like, look, it, you can't just talk about these things in their lives if you're not gonna be honest about the things in your life. This is why Paul, again and again, would draw attention to his own sinfulness because he wanted to make sure that the people weren't shocked and surprised that he dealt with the same things they deal with. And so he says, I'm the worst of sinners. He says in Romans seven, I do what I don't wanna do and I don't do what I wanna do. Like, this is, this is me. He doesn't want them to misunderstand his need for grace and his need for God's mercy. Matthew 23, when Jesus is preaching to these religious leaders, his main accusation against them is that they're hypocrites. I'm not guessing at that. It's like what he calls them to their face eight times. He's like, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. And as you might have heard, the word hypocrite comes from the Greek ancient classical theater when one actor would play a number of different characters and they'd switch masks to switch characters, but you would never really see their face. You wouldn't see their real face. They were just pretending lots of different masks depending on who they're trying to um, pretend to be. And Jesus says in verse three of these religious leaders, they do not practice what they preach. What they live doesn't match up with what they say. And Jesus says in, in verse five, everything they do is for people to see. So that their motivation, it's not just what they are doing or not doing, it's why they're doing it that's a problem. It's for other people to be impressed, not to glorify God, but to glorify themselves. Verse 25, Paul is gonna tell us how tradition without transformation is meaningless. Like if you're following all these religious traditions but no change is happening in you, you're wasting your time. And that religion without a relationship is pointless. But here's how he says it. <laughs> we have to contextualize this a little bit because his point is that circumcision of the skin without circumcision of the heart means nothing. And so there's this long section here where he's addressing that. I think the way the message paraphrases it is helpful for us. It says the uncircumcised to keep God's ways are as good as the circumcised. In fact, better. And all the Jews in the audience are like, what did you just say? Better to keep God's law uncircumcised than to break it circumcised. Now you, you can have all these outward appearances, but you're not, if you're not aligning your heart with God's heart, if your life doesn't reflect what's important to him, then, then you're missing the point. Paul goes on to say, verse 29, it's the mark of God on your heart, not, a not of the knife on your skin. It's the heart. Your outward appearance, your demonstrative acts of righteousness may get you the applause of people, but it's not what God notices. You can follow outward traditions, but it's the inward transformation that Jesus cares about. Again, this is all leading us to the good news of the gospel, that if I've put my hope 
in my outward appearance, if I put my hope in my religious rule keeping, if I put my hope in my moralism, it's not enough, but Jesus is enough. Because all of us are hypocritical, and all of us are self-promotional, and all of us, we want to impress people, and all of us struggle with finding identity in our accomplishments. All of us wanna be perceived by others a certain way. All of us put this pressure of wanting to perform on ourselves. Last week, I spent a few minutes talking about the cultural challenge that we have these days of external input. Lots of external input, lots of screen time, and I talked about how there's this correlation between the more external input we have, the less internal reflection we tend to do. Too much screen time almost always equates to a lack of self-awareness and, and a lack of internal reflection. So my challenge to you last week was leading up to Easter, can we limit some external input? Can we limit some screen time to do some more internal reflection? And after I finished preaching on Sunday, I, I had to catch a, a plane, I was going to speak somewhere, I was texting with my wife about the sermon Sunday morning. I'm gonna read to you what she texted me, but first what I, I want you to know is before she sent this, she sent me some nice things, okay? Before she sent me what I'm gonna read to you, she, she gave me three or four things that she really liked and appreciated. But then she said, I have to say, I was a little surprised that you didn't get more transparent and weren't a little more vulnerable and confessional when you were talking about the screen time. I do think your sermon was great and something we all needed to hear, but if you're going to get on stage and talk about too much external input in people's lives, you at least have to be honest enough to admit your struggle with it. I love you and I'm proud of you. What's she doing there? She's saying, look, it's okay for you to talk to people about this and still struggle with it, but it's not okay for you to talk to them about it and not tell them you're struggling with it. Get you a wife like that if you're a preacher, right? And this is what Paul is saying to people who are in the church. Like, you, you've gotta recognize your own struggle. You've gotta recognize your own, own weaknesses, your own need for God's grace. Because otherwise, what you'll end up doing is just putting all the attention on what other people need to do and how other people need to change, and you're gonna miss out on the transformation that he wants you to experience. And so, I, uh, I wanted to fill up my own sign this week. A lot of things I could have put here, but... So often distracted, inconvenient, or inconsistent, rather. Sometimes hypocritical and proud. But by God's grace, really, it is by God's grace, I'm learning to be present and intentional and I'm growing in vulnerability and consistency. Like this is it, this is the journey. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, here's how, here's how tricky this is. It took me to the third service to recognize that made me feel pretty good about myself, that I'd be willing to share that with all of you. You see how self-righteousness works? Like it's so subtle. And, and so Paul says, open your eyes, recognize your need for the grace of God in your life, then live in freedom. Live in freedom. 
Don't put the pressure on yourself to keep up appearances or manipulate the situation. Don't put the pressure on yourself to, to try to earn it or deserve it. Instead, put your hope in God's grace. When you walk out, you'll be given this, these little pieces of cardboard, and I'd love to challenge you to participate in what we've done here today, for you to write on here the front and back of your own journey of transformation. For some of you, you're right in the middle of it. You're, it's not there yet, but you're growing in those things. That's okay. Write that down. I'd encourage you to share it with someone, maybe post it or put it on your fridge. Or, and, and maybe for some of you, it's just the front side. Like you know an area that you need to surrender. You know an area that is out of alignment with God. You know something you need to repent of. You know where you need to say, God, this part of my life right now is broken. And you're, you don't know what to write on the other side yet. But you confess this to him. You write that down and you, you say, God, I'm surrendering this to you. Would you please show your grace? Would you please redeem? Would you please rewrite my story? And I mean, that's, that's what we wanna be true for all of us. I, over 500 people across our campuses this week stood up and flipped a sign. But it would be my prayer that every one of us have a story of transformation that we can tell, not because we're good enough, not because we've earned it, but because of God's grace through Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you loved us while we were still sinners. I thank you that you came to us while we were broken and that you, you make us new. I, I pray, God, that our confidence and our hope would not be in our outward appearance. It wouldn't be in our religious rule keeping. It, it wouldn't be in our own moralism, but it would be in you and in your righteousness and in your kindness and that that would lead us to repentance and that inward transformation would lead us to this outward obedience, but it would come from our hearts. It would come out of our love for you. And so God, we need your help there. I pray that your grace would meet us right where we're at today. I know it will. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you want to hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.